Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. When you're talking about sustainability and responsible travel and supporting local communities and blah, 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 like all of that stuff. Um, one of the important elements of it is where's the money going, you know? Um, and so the thing is with the, with the bigger operators, like the, the international operators that often have their own DMCs and they own the whole tower all the way down, um, a lot more money gets siphoned out. You know, it's not, it might be staying in the local, in the country for a period, but more of it is getting plunked out than if they're staying at, you know, Joe's guest house or, or whatever. Um, so I think this is really problematic. Good morning, entrepreneurs. Another podcast from the entrepreneur community. Today, I'm happy to welcome Stuart McDonald from travelfish.com. Org. Stuart co-foundry travelfish.org way back in 2007. The website began as a travel planning site aimed at backpackers heading to Southeast Asia and since then has expanded to cover much of the region with the small exception of the Philippines and Brunei. Stuart has been based in Southeast Asia since 1997, probably before some of our community were born, living in Thailand, Cambodia and Indonesia and is extremely well traveled in the industry. In industry, he's extremely well traveled in the route. He's also the author of the paid travel newsletter Couchfish, which I am a subscriber to and I can highly recommend. Stuart has strong opinions on many things, but the reason I invited him today was that I've recently been reading his opinions on the amount of greenwashing that has been going on in the travel industry, including in our sector of the tour sector. Before we get on to that, Stuart. Tell us about travelfish.org, how it got started, where it is now, what it is. All right, thanks to thanks for having me, Peter. Uh, we started the site in 2004, actually, not, not 2007. By 2007, we were probably actually making a little bit of money. Um, but we, my wife and I were living in Thailand at the time. I'd done a couple of guidebooks a few years earlier and taught myself how to build a basic website, that kind of thing. And uh, we just started covering like a website for backpackers because that's what we were. Um, and it was really just a banana pancake through uh, originally just Thailand. Then we added some of Laos, then some of Cambodia, Vietnam, and, and it slowly sort of grew over time. Um, I guess you'd describe it as like a like a lonely planet or a, a rough guide but online only um 
And so that's what it was. Uh, and the first couple of years, we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, we knew about travel. We've been, I've been backpacking in Southeast Asia since 93. And we just sort of saw this window where TripAdvisor was sort of taking off and everything, but it didn't cover a lot of secondary, the cooler kind of spots and stuff. And um, we just sort of wedged ourselves in there and kept traveling, kept doing it. We had uh, some policies that were a bit different to a lot of publishers, like we always paid our own way. We don't take previews and media rates and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's just sort of how it started, you know? And over the, the years following, we've tried all the various typical um, monetization strategies for a content site. You know, we, we did ads, we uh, affiliate marketing with insurance and hotels and all that kind of stuff. We sold PDFs uh, like miniature travel guides for specific areas and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then the business was sort of very up and down. Um, but after a few years, I think it was about, about four years in when I think about it. We were, we were in Jakarta by then and, um, we thought we've probably got burning enough that we can support ourselves for this. And my wife, who's a journalist, she took one year off, uh, from her employer, uh, Agence France Press, and we moved to Bali and we thought we'd try to keep the business going and live off it for a year. And that was, I don't know, like 15 years ago, you know, um, and you sh and so you still in Bali now? Yeah. Yeah. We're still in Bali. Yeah. Um, and so in the early years, I mean, all the work was me. I was doing all the research. I built the website. I wrote the copy. I made the maps. I, I did everything, which explains a lot of <clears throat> why some of the site still doesn't work properly. Um, but as it grew, as we start, uh, earning a bit of money, we took some people on, you know, again, the typical kind of flow of, um, people are first up on a part-time basis and freelance. Then uh, eventually we had a team of staff writers. Um, and then the pandemic came and everything stopped and the, the business ceased. Well, certainly ceased earning money and, uh, it's been in pretty much hibernation since, um, I'm just starting to, I've got my first trip, uh, to Jan in January to Vietnam, and that will be the first proper trip I've done, uh, since, uh, the pandemic hit. So yeah, that's so sort of like the flow history. Yep. So I've been at a fair few conferences since August, various parts of the world. And the assumption seems to be, particularly in WTM in London last week, that travel is back, everybody's having a great time, people are doing fantastic numbers. I strongly suspect that's not the case everywhere in the world, and you've just probably highlighted it by saying you've got your first trip in January, so nearly the best part of three years since uh, COVID hit. So what's the state of tourism in Southeast Asia today? Oh, well, there's still a lot of people that are sick. Um, I, I just did, I, 
what was it two weeks ago i went down to australia for the first time to see like family and stuff and that was my first trip out of uh indonesia since since the pandemic um and yeah no travel is not normal and i'm it, even before we went or i i said on twitter that something like 75 percent of the people that i knew who had traveled in the few months previous to me going away had caught covid so i mean i don't have a huge social circle but it's still it wasn't a great statistic um and i mean thankfully you know vaccinations are widespread and all that kind of stuff and so there's a lot less people dying uh but it's still a pain in the ass to get sick and it certainly stuffs up a trip um there's still lots of businesses that are closed i mean i was talking to a friend in cambodia uh like late last week and he'd just been in kep and kampot and siem reap and he said there's still heaps of places that are not open for business lots of places will never reopen um it's a similar situation in thailand it's certainly a similar situation here in bali i mean in south bali uh, which is where i live things have definitely picked up there's a, a hell of a lot of australians here and the traffic sucks um but there's still a a lot of shuttered businesses there's still a long way to go uh, bali was very reliant on on china for its inbound tourism so until china comes back on tap um there's a significant section of the business of the sector that i think is just going to stay in hibernation um the nuts and bolts of like you don't have to worry anymore about quarantine and and all that kind of thing like that mostly has been pushed aside uh but it's still not as easy as it used to be uh, when we checked in to fly back to indonesia from australia it took over an hour to check in once we were at the desk so i mean there's still a lot of paperwork and you still got to show your vaccination certificates and all that kind of stuff so yeah it's not it's not back yet i don't think it'll be back for a while yet uh, people people talking about being yeah you know we're, we're back to normal um uh, i don't really credit that yeah it's yeah i mean i've not been in southeast asia since previous to covid but europe is definitely back and the us is definitely back uh, and then and everybody just assumes the rest of the world is it's the same uh and it and it's not the simple fact is it's not i mean there's other problems in the us and Europe now, apart from COVID, the economic situation starting to click, sure. which is going to have a, a dramatic effect. Well, probably going to have a dramatic effect. None of us really know where where that's going to go, uh, because travel has been living in a bit of a bounce back bubble in certain regions. Yeah, I mean there, there was there was definitely a big bounce back here very early on, uh, and it was quite intolerable. You, you made you realise just how busy things were before the pandemic because we went from dead quiet like there was nothing going on for two and a half years or whatever and they turn it back on and suddenly the streets are full of australians um but i was uh talking to a travel operator in in chiang mai last week and they've definitely seen business coming back like they they are running tours they're taking tours to laos to vietnam to cambodia to thailand quite a lot from the uk but it is still a fraction of what they were seeing uh pre pre-pandemic so i think we've got a while to go yet 
I haven't got the data at hand on this, but I have seen it. A huge amount of the extra volume that Europe and the US has been getting is because people haven't been going long haul to Asia. They've been switching long haul to Asia to short haul if, if they're European within Europe well, or if they're America within America. You've seen the price of flights. I mean, that's a yeah. pretty easy one to explain. I mean, it's it's bloody expensive. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's complicated. It's more complicated than it used to be. There's more risk than there used to be. And it costs a hell of a lot more money than it used to. You know, so it's not surprising that uh, the numbers haven't come back yet. So maybe we have both of a certain age, so maybe it's just gone back to what it used to be many Many decades ago. <laughs> Although the price when you land in, on inland isn't going to be the same as it was many decades ago, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So let's move on to what our listeners are really interested in, Stuart, which is two companies. Most of your listeners are small two businesses, many of them day two businesses, significant proportion multi-day businesses, and a proportion that do both day tours and multi-day. Yeah. I was reading something you, you wrote recently, either listening to or reading on on your uh, Substack about economic leakage, and this is yep. something I think our community doesn't really understand, grasp, or really think about that much. And economic leakage is about if you charge X for a an experience for a multi-day holiday going into your destination, it's about how much money stays in that destination and benefits the local community, the local people, and how much money is extracted from it and kept back in country X, Y, or Z, be that the USA or European country, or in many cases, a bank account in the Cayman Islands. So I've recently seen some of you were going about economic leakages from some of the big tour companies not being what they were proportioning them to be. Uh, yeah, so... I think there's a couple, a couple of things at play here. I mean, I've often heard, and this is again pre-plant pandemic, like talking about tours into Indonesia, that um, sixty percent of the money the guest would be paying would be offshored. So, like going back to whether it's Australia or the UK or whatever, um, and that strikes me as a pretty bad deal. Uh, I mean, particularly when the destination is the place that wears the, it gets the upside, but it wears the downside as well, you know? Um, so when you're talking about sustainability and responsible travel and supporting local communities and blah, 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 like all of that stuff, um, one of the important elements of it is where's the money going, you know? Um, and so the thing is with the with the bigger operators, like the, the international operators that often have their own DMCs and they own the whole tower all the way down, um, a lot more money gets siphoned out. You know, it's not, it might be staying in the local, in the country for a period, but more of it is getting plunked out than if they're staying at, you know, Joe's guest house or, or whatever. Um, so I think this is really problematic. And there was a, I listened to a, a podcast just the other day from, Oh, I forget the name of it now. It'll come to me. But uh, in that, they were talking to a guy who runs a DMC in Vietnam. And he said 
the it's not unusual for that leakage to get up to 80%. Now, that's just wrong, you know, and I think if an operator is behaving in that way and trying to call themselves a responsible operator, uh, it's just, it's bullshit, you know. Yes. Um, so, so I was looking into that. I've actually got another story coming up in the series that's looking more closely at the financing, but one of the, a good example. So when people come back and say, well, this isn't cool. So the companies are trying to push back against that. So you have uh, a good example is G Adventures. So they've, they've come up with this concept called a ripple score. And what that does is it measures how much of the spend stays in the, in the destination. It's sort of the idea, the concept behind it is it gives the consumer a really easy like way to understand. They don't have to read a PhD thesis to figure out where the money's going. That's a score out of a hundred. So their trips to Vietnam say that it's 100%. 100% of their money stays in Vietnam. And I'm like, come on. So I, contact, I contacted G Adventures about it and they strung me along for a couple of weeks promising to answer, but they never did. So I don't actually know what they actually think. But when you look at the small print of what they're saying, how they define a local business is it only has to be 50% owned by a local or it can just be owned by some a foreigner who's resident in the country and still only 50%. So essentially that can be a foreign owned company, right? Yeah. But they call it local. So that's bullshit. Then they don't include flights for some blah, blah reason. So this kind of thing is really problematic because when the, tour, when the customers are buying this thing and they're buying into it and they think that, yeah, 100% of my money is staying here because G-Adventures told me, in reality, that's not really what's going on. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's a bigger issue with these large international operators, you know, who have operations all over the shop. Um, but even for a small, a small company, you know, um, I, I don't really want, want to name anybody, but I mean, someone who's operating, say in, in Cambodia, they're a Cambodian business and they're running tours to other places in Cambodia. Again, it's like, where are the guides coming from? Where are the vans coming from? Where are the drivers coming from? Where is all this money actually going? Are they using restaurants that they're affiliated with, or is it just some random place on the side of the road? Where is the scope for commissions and backhanders and all this kind of thing? And all of this matters, but it's very difficult to quantify and make it into an easy kind of thing for people to understand. Um, but it is a, a big problem, I think. It is difficult, but it's probably of all the different badges that are getting stuck on with reference sustainability and different criteria this is the one that probably connects with the consumer the most and it is from a from a wording percep perception it's pretty simple if you give us five thousand dollars four thousand dollars stays in destination it is safe it's something that connects with the consumer and they're easily to understand because a lot of the stuff in this this area is very difficult to understand, but mm. it only makes sense if it's real and everyone's working on the same, uh, the same calculations. 
and for obvious reasons, we know why flights are excluded every time because flights are a big chunk of the the cost. The cost, and, sure. And obviously, that big chunk doesn't go to the destination; it goes to where whichever country the flights register in. So that will take your percentage down significantly. And and then it gets into from what I've experienced over the years: what type of tour is it? Because the actual type of tour can make a significant difference as well. If it's a tour where they're using branded hotels every night, from going from point to point, point, and it's a branded hotel tour or large hotel tour, who owns the hotels? Because you yeah. may think you're paying into the local economy because you're living in a hotel in that country, a hotel in Vietnam. But you've actually got to look at who actually owns a hotel behind it because in certain cases, not not so much like two companies owning the hotels, that tends to be just in Europe and Mexico and the US, but big international companies do own a lot of hotels all over the place. Yeah. So there is exactly. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a, a good way to look at it is to take a very, very simple example, and then you can just build it out. And it's the same principle. It doesn't matter if you're just going across the road to a local restaurant or whatever, you know, it's like, where did this food come from? I mean, if I go into the restaurant across the road and say, you know, where did this beef come from? Was it imported from Australia? Nobody there could tell me, you know? And I mean, so it becomes like, how far down do you want to boil this? Like what really matters? Um, and, you know, how much is just being siphoned off in wages? Like businesses have to make a profit. You know, I'm not begrudging people making money and paying salaries and all that kind of thing. Um, but if you're going to get up there and say that you're a responsible operator and you're supporting sustainable tourism and everything, then, you know, show me the numbers, prove it. Uh, yeah. because the, those, those terms have become, they're like, like the boutique hotel of this decade. You know, they've, they've been so overused. They're so, uh, malleable that they mean nothing. You know, I read a paper only recently that was talking about how hunting tours are a form of sustainable tourism. And I mean, you could argue it, you know, I mean, I, personally, I don't agree with it, but I mean, you could argue that. And this is the problem with all of these, all this terminology is there aren't firm uh, definitions. So it makes it very easy to uh, prone to abuse. Yeah, that, and there is, I mean, I've gone back to my own background when I was operating outbound, uh, mainly from Europe into Asia, tours, which would be classed as adventure tours, I know how much we charged and I know how much stayed in the destination. And it was normally, we didn't use a lot of hotels. Hotels would be 1% to 2% of the time because we were camping most of the way. So the, right, ground, okay. the ground operator, would, there'd be hotels on arrival and the hotels on the departure or guest houses because it tended to be remote remote regions. Mm -hmm. So the ground operator was the one that got most of the money and how that was distributed between the team that supported them. But we always missed yeah. out the DMC. We never went ever through a DMC. I would spend my time finding operators on the ground direct because that takes out one level. Yeah. That's quite unusual though. Today. Yeah, I am quite unusual. <laughs> Probably why I've spent or probably why I've got grey hair because I always do things the daft way and hard way rather than the simple way. But yeah, we we left most of the money in destination. We'll keep and again, 
I'm excluding flights here because the flight we have to get there, and I didn't calculate that. And, and this was before these these issues came out, came to the head of only thinking back how much did we pay in the country versus when we were out of it. Plus, we would be in country for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, to three months. Mm. The money stayed. So there is styles of tourism that are definitely, I know, factually are contributing greatly to, to people on the, the ground, but there's also styles. You come into Europe, away from Asia, where you own a tour operator, you know, TUI, for example, where they own the planes, they own the hotels, yeah. they, own the, they own the food supply into it, they own everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That can easily get into the ninety percent plus extraction, rather than that staying in the staying in the destination easily because they just own everything in the in the chain. Yeah, see, and this is really problematic. And the destination, I mean, I know, I mean, two of yeah, I mean, they they do they've got their token projects that they're doing to make them look nice and everything. But at the end of the day, it's an extractive organization, right? At the destinations that he's taking people to, they they wear the cost of it. You know, when the pandemic hit and Tuli was refusing to pay hotels in Thailand for stays that had already been used pre-pandemic, it was refusing to pay, pay for them. You know, and these small Thai operators were going to the wall and Tui's there had just been bailed out. I can't remember who, right? The German government or something. German government, and, yeah. And it was like, give me a freaking break. You know, um, so I mean, yeah, the big ones are, are very problematic. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, count the money, follow the money. I mean, yeah, it's a good start. And I mean, I think the money should be all and end all of this. If of all the other, and there must be, I have read at least 15 different certification standards because there's so many certification standards. Yeah. And I'm confused. I'm totally confused with them all. I think the one that everybody can understand is where the money's going. But there's absolutely no way because companies are not going to expose where all the money's going. So it's not yeah. going up at scale, particularly the big companies. But I do think for small operators, operators that are listening to this, there is no reason for us to hide. That it's, a, it's actually in our interest to let our customers know where the money's going. There is no reason for a small operator to hide on this. Because they're not hiding in the, the money. I know what they're getting and I know what's going elsewhere. So there's no real reason for small operators on that. Moving on to that, I, I noticed something else you wrote uh, and you were speaking about Intrepid at this time, which was, and I hadn't really thought about this until I read and then I thought, yeah, that's not good. Uh, and I have been guilty myself in South Asia, Asia of doing this badly. Uh, oh, yeah. In federal <laughs> flight, because it is oh, a region... Yeah that is really easy to get about with internal flight. I'll tell you how bad I was. Uh, it was Air Asia at some point in the distant past used to sell a ticket for a couple of hundred dollars and it was 10 flights or something. I, I used to buy oh, them fast. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then I would bounce about all over uh, Southeast Asia. So I'm totally guilty of doing this. Uh, again, it was before all uh, the environmental stuff was, was highlighted. But internal flight, could you just talk a bit about that and the concept of a tour coming in terminal fleet? Yeah, I mean, like you, I'm I'm totally guilty on this. You know, in the year before um, the pandemic, I was through KL, I think, 50 times or something, something absurd. 
Um, the problem with it is that, I mean, okay, transport is, when you're talking about carbon, transport is the major problem. And of that, your flights are the biggest chunk of that. Now, you can either take the view that saying, okay, well, I'm not going to fly long haul anymore. Or you're going to say, okay, I'm in England and I want to go to Thailand. I'm not going there by tuk-tuk, so I have to fly. So then when you're in country, you have to do everything you can, in my opinion, to abate the emissions of getting there in the first place. So when you have, uh, I mean, this goes for independent travelers as well, but like as we're talking about uh, tour companies in particular, I was using Vietnam as the example, and I used uh, Intrepid as the flogging horse for this, but I mean, they're, they're all the same. You know, uh, well, they're not, but the, a lot of the operators are the same. And that even though Vietnam has a perfectly um, usable train network, they fly often to one of the Intrepid trips has three domestic flights in it. I mean, what are you, what are you doing? And the reason that they're doing, they're needing to do this is because they're cramming so much into a ridiculously short itinerary. So when I contacted Intrepid, who, unlike Gap, were polite enough to answer my questions, they said that the market wants an eight-day tour to Vietnam to see everything the country has to offer. That's almost an exact quote. And, I mean, my response to that is, well, the customer is not always right. And going to, to Vietnam and trying to see everything in eight days is ridiculous. But the only way you can do that is by having these domestic flights. You, it's not possible, unless you want to spend three quarters of the tour on a train, um, it's not possible to do these itineraries without flying. So the responsibility falls into two uh, parts. One is it's Intrepid or whoever the two tour company is. And the other is the consumer demanding that um, this is what they want. And Intrepid, the, the, uh, the person who got back to me said that they need to satisfy this market to be a financially viable company. So they need to redesign their trips. I mean, it's a chicken and the egg kind of situation. But as, as I wrote about in that post years ago, when, when elef elephant riding was going out of fashion, um, there were still lots of, lots of tourists who wanted to do it. But Intrepid said, no, we're not going to do it. And, now, and they were ahead of the, the curveball on that one. And now you would struggle to find a Western-focused operator that was offering elephant riding in Southeast Asia. You'd probably find it eventually, but you'd have to look pretty hard. It used to be bog standard. Every freaking trip, you could do elephant riding. So they reshape, reshape demand. And you go and look on their website. They got a whole essay about why we don't ride elephants, blah, blah, blah. They need to do the same thing with, with flights. They need to have a page that says, the planet is on freaking fire. You can't do a tour. It is completely irresponsible to do an eight-day trip to Vietnam with three domestic flights on it, which is why our eight-day tours to Vietnam only go to this one portion of the country. You know, I mean, that's not a complicated thing to do. If you don't offer the trip, people can't buy it. I mean, it's pretty simple. This comes, to, this comes to the who is leading 
on this change that we're all going to have to do? Is it going to be the consumer or is it going to be the industry? Now, I would argue if we wait on the consumer, we'll all be having to be really good swimmers because the consumer isn't yeah. going to change any um, way the speed. If, if I'm understanding the figures right, coming in at COP 26 or 27 or whatever number it was, it just finished. The consumer is not going to change with regards travel or with regards other lifestyle changes anywhere near. Therefore, it's going to have to be industry-led. Or am, am I wrong in the consumer well, change well, industry? I mean, it, it could. You know, I mean, anything is possible. Um, but I think the the... Particularly because when you have operators who are saying we're trying to, we are responsible, we are a world leader in responsible travel, then you stop offering these garbage fire trips and you explain to consumers, just like you did with elephants, why this is not a good thing to do. It's the science is clear, you know, there's academic reports on rising sea levels and Thailand talking about it losing the beaches. So by it's 2080, which feels like a thousand years away, but it isn't that far, that a significant number of the West Coast beaches, they will have lost 75% of their sand cover. So when those, those tourist areas don't have beaches anymore, people aren't going to go. And people think, oh, well, t 2080, it's so far away. Yet yeah, it is. But halfway to that is 2000 and whatever, what, 50, 40? I don't know. Not, it's not, it's in my lifetime, I hope, you know. And, and so it's already going to be rising. People are already going to be seeing the effect. And so the irony is that the people who are flying in and flying around the countries to do these trips are, are, um, are directly contributing to the problem that is going to make these place, places not be there anymore. And this, this comes into the whole thing from, uh, from regional governments. Like there's been this whole, whole drama here where, where various, uh, uh, governments are saying they, they don't want backpackers anymore. They don't want budget travelers anymore. They want high quality tourists, right? Which is code for people who are going to spend a lot of money and not stay too long. But the, the offside of that is these people are the ones who are going to fly more. These people are the ones who are going to be flying domestically all over the spot for their eight-day trip. And yet the governments are saying these guys are the pre pre preferable one on, in the sustainability equation. I mean, that's bullshit, you know. But the travelers, people, people who are going to catch the bus or whatever. I mean, there's whole structural things like what we were talking about before we started about why is the train so much more expensive than the, than the plane? Like there's pricing structural things that, that need to change. Um, but coming back to your question of is, should this be driven by the, com the companies? Absolutely. I mean, if the consumers aren't going to do it and by all, as far as I can see, there's no, you know, booking come out and say whatever that 75% of people want, want, um, want to travel sustainably. Um, but when they ask somebody that in a booking.com quiz or survey or whatever, they should say what that means. It should say, well, no more horizon pools, no more air conditioning, no more domestic flights. Do you still want it? 
like that would be a like when people say, "Yeah, I want sustainability," and people don't even understand what it means, you know, because because it has been so um, overused. Yeah. Well, it's and it is complex. Like the concepts around responsible tourism are all good. Responsible travel, sorry, they're all good. They they are all progressive ideas that would benefit destinations. But nobody really understands what it is. You know, yeah. you've got to, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, I went back to university to start my master's, which is in responsible tourism. And that's where, you know, I started reading all of this stuff and going, oh, wow, now I understand what it actually means. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think the companies are in the position to shift consumer demand far more than the consumers are to start you know, boycotting, I don't know, whichever company because it's it's flying too much or whatever. It's the the Intrepid does a lot of good stuff, right? They they want to be a responsible tourism offer. They're forever talking about it. So do it. Get rid of these garbage fire trips. If they don't want to do that, if they want to keep selling those trips, then maybe they could make an extra tab on their website and they could call it irresponsible travel, you know, or something like that. Unsustainable tours, you know, um, and and see how many people want to book an unsustainable tour, you know. Um, it's, I'm kidding. Oh, totally joking. <laughs> I was speaking to a professor from a university in the US and he was a professor of marketing. He had a huge amount of information and data on the environmental change. And he showed us some maps of the heat change coming up from the south to the north. And it wasn't by 2080, it was by 2050, uh, which is only 28 years away. So hopefully we'll both still be sucking some oxygen in, in that time. Yeah. So the heat map of the heat coming up from, and we're concentrating on Europe, but coming up over Africa and into the Mediterranean, up through Mediterranean, into France, into the northern regions was substantial and then he pointed out this year because this was in september this year the heat in southern spain was 48 49 and people were already leaving spain on holiday to go to northern europe on holiday to get yeah. away from heat now we have a whole yeah. industry built on moving people from northern europe to southern europe for one yeah. thing heat people like the culture yeah. like the food they like the beaches they like the mediterranean but the driving reason they are going south is for heat. The yeah. his point was, what happens on Mars by 2050 when Northern Europe is getting the level of temperature that Southern Europe was getting in the 1980s and the 1990s? People will not have the, the urge to go south, but lots of people from the south will have the urge to go north because it's going to yeah. be 40 odds consistently or 50 in the southern regions of, of Europe. And when you start thinking through that on numbers and globally, and not just for the travel industry, that has whole whole society level issues. Yeah, it's, the ramifications are, are enormous, you know. Um, but I, I mean, as as much as it's easy to sort of uh, pick on travel uh, tour operators and say, you know, this is all really problematic. I mean. There are operators who are doing good things. I mean, I know operators here who say we don't do trips to Komodo, right? Uh, in in the national park, 
because they just can't see a responsible way to do it. So they just, just simply don't do it. So what I'm suggesting Intrepid do, or Gap or whoever, um, it's not like this is virgin territory. People are, companies are starting to do it, but you're seeing it generally on the very small operator side, like the, you know, husband and wife teams and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but it's a good start, you know, um, and it's better than nothing, which is a low bar, but you know, just a little bit on just again for our audience, some will understand this cause we know, I know I've got a lot of people in the audience who are really interested in this stuff and they know a lot more about it than me, but travel is going to double between up until use 2050 again and 2019 numbers, it's going to double by 2050 by our account. Which is huge. That, that is that is massive. Yeah. And if we double or treble the long haul flights within that, then long haul flights, it's just, there's absolutely no way on this earth that we're going to get anywhere near 1.5% or whatever they've agreed on. It, no. It's not going to, it's just not going to happen. And I'm not quite sure everybody understands the impact of long haul flights growth. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Travel Foundation put out a report, um, was it Monday, I think? And in that, they suggest that by 2050, 41% uh, of fl tourism's flight emissions will be caused by 4% yeah. of the packs. I mean, so this is like what we're talking about is inconveniencing 4%. It, when you look at it that way, you know, I don't think we're ever like until where the whole joint is on fire. I don't think we're going to ha have see a cessation of long haul flights. There will always be, be people who want to go to Thailand from the UK or, or whatever. Um, so it's really very much a case of, okay, you're going to do that. So when you're in country, you need to be to operate uh, the, 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 passenger needs to travel as responsibly and sustainably as they can. So for, for your listeners, for tour operators, the smaller ones who are particularly already set in the destination, this is the stuff that they really need to signpost as clearly and in simple English as possible um, so that readers, potential guests can understand it, you know, um, and burying people in percentages and carbon and, and all this kind of stuff. It's really, I think, got to be boiled down to layman's terms. And, you know, you sort of say stuff like, I don't know, we pay our staff fairly. What does that mean? You know, the minimum wage here is um, a, about 2 million rupiah, so about, say, $150 a month. That's the minimum wage. That's, I don't consider that to be a fair wage, but I'm sure operators do pay that to some staff. So it's like, don't tell me you pay them fairly. Tell me what you pay them. You know, are you paying above award wages? What kind of benefits are you giving? How do you look after your staff? All that kind of thing. What are you doing with the communities? Do the communities even want you to be there? And this is, this is a whole part of the conversation that travel is really not um, talking about is like you get talking about, oh, we're helping local communities and CBD tourism and blah, 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 blah. But it's, do the locals even want you to be there? 
you know, how much, and they talk about a community as if it's this single cohesive whole. And, you know, I'm sure wherever it is that you live in the, in the village or town or whatever that you live, everyone's not the same. They don't have the same opinions and it's no different here. And you, you see these destinations, particularly in the, in Southeast Asia, being packaged up as these cohesive, friendly local farming people or whatever. And it's, it's, that's again, bullshit. I mean, it's far more complex than that. And so operators need to talk about how are these people getting fairly vested into this whole tourism product? You know, what are they getting out of it? Why, why do you want to keep, why do they want you to keep bringing people to their village, town, mountain, beach, whatever? You know, and explain that to people, explain that to guests so they have a better understanding and don't treat people like idiots, um, which is what so much of this greenwashing stuff is, where companies are just saying, well, look, I'm just going to say it. And I mean, you know, you know, the state of a lot of travel media, it's uh, hardly critical um, and it just gets regurgitated over and over again. Um Ask hard questions, you know, um, but for the operators, make it easy to, to get this information. I mean, everyone's got a freaking website now, you know, so explain what you do, explain why this is a sustainable, whatever you can't, it's impossible to explain how a, a trip to an eight day trip to Vietnam with three flights is sustainable because it's not right. Yeah. So you have a different eight day trip, which is sustainable and explain that to me, you know, one, one of the opportunities I see if there is an opportunity here with a long haul and it's because the way society is changing and this won't impact all long haul guests by any means, but it'll impact a certain proportion. A lot of people are living very different lives now from the world living in 2019. A lot of people yeah. have freedom. Like some of us who have been traveling our life have had freedom over our time and places forever. But we were in a minority. Now we're not in a minority. There's a significant amount of people now living a different style of life, which if you are going to travel long haul and there's nothing stopping you staying there for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, two months, three months, mm. that is a way of mitigating that long haul flight if you if you yeah. do that for your uh, Absolutely. You know, I mean this, the visa regulations, like the, the countries here is, you know, like I was saying before, we don't want backpackers, blah, blah, blah. Um, a, a country like Thailand, Vietnam, like the Indonesia has a one month tourist visa. There's 17,000 islands here. You know, I mean, it's ludicrous. I was just interviewing a hotel out East. It's a new place. It's a really good, really responsible operator. They've got, it's 100% renewable energy, blah, 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 blah. They don't make any of these claims because they think they're all bullshit. They don't want to get up and say we're a sustainable operator because they know that there's this perception that it means nothing. But their biggest problem is the visa. It's going to take you days to get there overland. Um, so for countries, to, they need to rethink this stuff. If they want to have sustainable tourism, they need people who are traveling long-term, slow travelers, that kind of stuff on longer trips, whether they're backpackers or, or global nomads or whatever or people on longer, longer, um, organized tours, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't run 
a three week, you know, four week trip through wherever at a reasonable pace so that you're not traveling every other day. You're not, you know, on four wheels or two wheels or flying through the air or whatever every other day, like a lot of these itineraries are. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they need longer, longer tourist visits for sure. It's a no brainer. One part of the industry and, um, I've got to stick my hands up here and say I'm exceedingly guilty here as well. Uh, but I've been thinking about it a lot recently. Is the tourism industry that's back and working has gone straight back into conference mode around the world. So there's big international conferences. I've just left one world uh, WTM in London, which was huge. It was it was exceedingly busy. ITB in Berlin's coming up. I suspect it will be be the same. And then when you look at who's attending. Like there's well over a hundred countries represented with big teams of people flying in from all over the world for three days and then flying all the way back out again. And then there's a massive stage there called sustainability stage and lots yeah. of talks, lots of companies pitching their sustainability and green credentials. But I'm looking around the room and saying, but what we are doing here is the least green thing we could possibly do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not a conference person, you know, it's not, not really my stick. Um, but a, a friend of mine, uh, Kevin May, he, he used to do yeah. keynotes and all All right. Okay. I, I saw a funny thing by him a little while ago. Um, I don't know what the conference was and, and he sort of got up and said, well, now this is the uncomfortable section where we all talk about sustainable tourism or, or something like that. And there were all, all this nervous laughter and people were walking out of the room and that kind of thing. As being treated as like this side issue, you know, um, but I think the wheels are, are turning, you know, I mean, yes, the, the whole conference thing is, is a joke, you know, I mean, COVID was the perfect way of, of saying look, video conferencing works. I mean, it's not great. You can't sort of go and gossip, you know, back in the bar or whatever, um, but for the nuts and bolts of it, there's no reason to get on a plane. It's absurd um, flying. Yeah, but then it's the same with COP and all this other stuff as well, you know. Um, the World Cup, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the most... Hello, you know. <laughs> Don't get me started on that one. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really tricky, you know. Um, and I, I don't know what the solution is i think from the from the traveler's point of view i think the days of just going to get your guide or whatever and picking something that sounds good that's over i mean i know that's what everybody is doing but people need to take more responsibility uh for what they're doing and like the um the repercussions of it a few years ago it just brings to mind because i mentioned get your guide um a few years ago they had this really good presentation about a trip they did in bali it was an instagram tour of bali and they had this really interesting presentation about how they had designed the trip and they kept putting things in to make more money off the punters and that kind of stuff but what it was was one day in a van riding around to, I don't know, like a dozen different highlights where you get out, take your Instagram photo, get back in your van and go on to the next thing. And it was the biggest selling tour. I can't remember if it was in Southeast Asia or the world or it was something absurd. They were doing selling like hotcakes. 
but it was completely from an environmental point of view it was stupid from a uh social cultural point of view of getting to know the locals and all that kind of stuff there was none of that i mean you knew the driver and but you were going to a dozen places in a day or however many it was and i mean so this kind of stuff i mean obviously operators shouldn't be offering it um but also consumers should be thinking a bit more about the repercussions of what they're doing and so i guess you start that with education you know like tour operators put up things on their page and say this is why we don't do this because it's stupid and it's bad for the planet and it's bad for the people and whatever else you know i mean all the stuff so sorry is um it is going to bring to operators having to be a lot more blunt because the consumers don't understand this stuff the vast majority all them surveys ticking boxes 70 percent are interested they haven't done detailed reading. I've done a lot of detailed reading into this stuff, and I'm still confused tremendously. So this stuff is confusing. So it actually needs to be simplified by the industry just being honest and blunt on what's good and bad. And, then see every- and, and, and boiling it down, you know, um, I mean, it's things like, um, uh, like not using plastic for... Um, like the whole straw thing and all of this kind of stuff. They're using the the right kind of light bulbs and whatever. Um, All of these things that people are claiming accolades for, it's like, you should be doing that anyway. Like, why is this even noteworthy? It's like when the the tour guide companies come out and say, hey, we employ local guides. It's like, oh, that's nice. That's actually a legal requirement. You know, you are supposed to be doing that. So why why is that somehow responsible? You're just obeying the law. So once you know a little bit about this kind of stuff, then you look at this and it's like, oh, that's bullshit. But the companies need to like rethink what they're doing and make it like this. It sounds like something out of my uni readings, but a holistic package where it's redesigned with sustainability at its core. So they like, don't go on waste whatever like 50 rand a year being a b corp or that kind of stuff just run your business properly like what this this kind of stuff is just does my head in um so it's like run your business properly and then look at the harder things and that's the stuff that you should be getting you know accolades for for doing the hard things rather than you know giving everyone the bamboo straw or or whatever, um, and then let the people know, you know. And then when you're doing that, when you're telling your punters that this is, this is how we run our trips and why we run our trips this way and the difference to our trips, you don't even have to point to the dude down the road who isn't doing that. You know, a smart consumer should be able to figure that stuff out. And sustainability will save you money. You know, like people keep thinking it's going, oh, it's too expensive. It's too difficult and that kind of stuff. These light bulbs are cheaper than them. Why would you put the high energy light bulbs in? They cost more, you know? I mean, it's going to save you power. I mean, there's so much muddle in all of this. Um, And yeah, I I think, I know I'm rambling a bit, but um, yeah, I think, the responsibility falls to both parties. The the operators are in a better position to make a real change that is going to change, well, improve their businesses 
and change consumer behavior. So if they want to be a responsible operator, like seriously considered as one, then uh, they need to, you know, do the hard yards. Walk the talk. Stuart McDonald from travelfish.org. Thanks very much for a really interesting conversation. I think the most used one we had there was bullshit. So Sorry we about that. We've got Stuart for the listeners under, understand exactly what bullshit means. And we know <laughs> that in this sector, sustainability, environmental, greenwashing, that is a lot of bullshit flying about. I am sure this topic isn't going away. I am sure this topic is going to be promoted and is going to be end up being the most discussed topic around travel. That's just going to be yep. going to happen. It's not at the Absolutely. moment, but it will be. So for everybody listening, from our audience, if you aren't paying attention to these issues at the moment, you really need to start paying attention. And going forward, we'll be inviting more guests who are knowledgeable and expert around this region uh, because I'm not, and Mitch is not, and Chris is not. We're learners, but we're not experts. So we will be bringing more people in constantly around this to help you, the operators, change your business to make sure you're operating in a way that you can stand up and be proud of it. Stuart, thanks very much for your time. Uh, I'm very jealous that you're dry and I'm in rainy, cold Scotland at the moment. I will be back in South right. Asia sometime for at least a month. I will not be traveling for two weeks. It will be a no nice flights. No domestic yeah. flights. Thanks for having me, Peter. Okay, thanks, Stuart. Thank you.